exit wounds in office space. Readers of the Gervais Principle series often request similar analyses of other favourite shows and books. In general, I view such requests as a failure on my part. If you need every show about organisational dynamics interpreted for you, you are either addicted to analysis for its own sake, or I have failed in my main intent, getting you organisationally literate enough to read what you see on your own. Teach a woman to fish, etc. Still, I figured it would be fun to do at least one encore as a thank you for buying the e-book. I picked Office Space because it is short enough to cover in one essay and because it highlights a theme the office mostly ignores, exit paths from social scripts. Warning, spoilers ahead. In the opening scene of Office Space, we find the real-life Dilbert, Peter Gibbons, and his fellow software engineers Michael and Samir stuck in morning rush-hour traffic on their way to their jobs at Initech, a software company. In a foreshadowing of what is to come, the three deal with the gridlock in markedly different ways. Peter, being overtaken by an old man on the sidewalk, gets impatient and tries to change lanes, but each time he does so, the lane he switches to stalls and the other lane starts moving faster. Michael displays no such impatience. He stays in his lane and sings along to a gangster rap song, but when he observes a black man coming up to his car selling newspapers, he immediately rolls up his window. Samir does not try to actively change lanes, but neither does he seek escape in the music of an outlaw class. He just screams at other drivers in impotent rage. The setup lays out the core theme of the story. Work experienced as a psychic prison, the allure of escape and the dangers that await you if you actually decide to head for the exits. When we first meet them, Peter, Michael and Samir are navigating their dead-end jobs the same way they navigate gridlock traffic, with fruitless stabs at change, obliviousness and rage, respectively. They are comprehensively trapped in middle-class life scripts until they decide to make a break for it. The Psychic Prison The opening gridlock scene is just one of many rather obvious symbolic elements littered throughout the script, which makes it much easier to interpret than The Office. The symbols aren't random. They constitute a pointillist portrait of what Gareth Morgan in Images of Organization calls the psychic prison metaphor of organization. Besides the gridlock, other bits of psychic prison symbolism include the gangster rap soundtrack, rebellion and exit to an outlaw class. The TPS reports, symbol of futile bureaucratic makework. The malfunctioning printer, an embodiment of the broken script that traps them, which they smash when they make a break for freedom. Cubicle walls, which Peter takes down to reveal a window after he mentally breaks free. The red stapler that serves as the one ring for the dehumanised Milton, the golem of the story. The pieces of flair that Joanne, Peter's romantic interest, is forced to wear, markers of enforced gaiety as part of servitude at work. Peter, Michael and Samir, at the start of the story, are grappling with the gradual draining of freedom that is the consequence of socialization into middle-class scripts. It is a kind of loss, and where there is loss, there will be Kubler-Ross. In terms of the Kubler-Ross stages of grieving, Michael is in denial. He has buried his head in gangster rap. He sincerely believes he and Samir are safe from looming layoffs as the two best engineers at Initech, and that Peter is the one at risk. 
Later in the story, when Peter reveals that the opposite is true, he is devastated. Samir, perhaps due to his heightened sense of insecurity as an Asian immigrant and frustration at stalling out after making it in America, has progressed to anger. Peter is actively bargaining with fate, as his lane-changing tendencies demonstrate. He can still distinguish between significant and futile work, as his resistance to doing his TPS reports correctly and on time demonstrate. Joanna, whom we meet later, is battling depression in her job at the restaurant next door. None of the characters has achieved the stable last stage of grieving. Acceptance. This is because none of them, at the beginning of the movie, has given up hope that the loss can be reversed. Each secretly nourishes hopes of an exit to a better life. Freedom, Hypnosis and Awakening The major theme of Office Space, unlike The Office, is not deciphering and navigating the gridlock on the road to power but exiting the rat race altogether to a state held up as an ideal of freedom, exile. Unlike the sociopaths in the office, Peter does not attempt to seriously find freedom by navigating his way to the top. Instead, he attempts to engineer an exit. Initially, his efforts, like his futile lane-changing in the opening scene, are entirely ineffective. The plot device that sets the story in motion and powers Peter on his way towards an effective escape is deliciously ironic. At a therapy session, Peter's hypnotherapist dies of a sudden heart attack just after putting him into a hypnotic trance. For the rest of the movie, Peter never wakes up from his hypnotised state. The joke, of course, is that his hypnotised state is actually his awakened state, one which enables him to act effectively by seeing through the fictions of the workplace. It is the others in the plot... Michael, Samir, the boss, Bill Lumberg, the girlfriend, Joanna, who are in a hypnotic trance, treating as real the consensual social fictions that keep them trapped in their scripts. Peter awakens to freedom in one contrived instant. The plot contrivance in office space is somewhere between the explicitly dramatised blue pill, red pill device in The Matrix and the sorts of shock that do the trick in real life. Momentous events, which will eventually break the Initech gridlock, are set in motion. The Taste of Freedom For the first few days after his awakening, Peter does little more with his freedom besides ignoring his boss, Bill Lumberg, who wants him to come in to work on the weekend. When he does show up for work, he finds a couple of sociopath consultants, Bob Slidell and Bob Porter, who have been brought in to interview the staff in preparation for a round of layoffs waiting to talk to him. Asked to justify his job, the born-again sociopath Peter responds with insouciant candour, immediately acknowledging that his job is pointless and that he barely does any work at all. For an encore, he proceeds to casually sketch out the patterns of dysfunction at Initech, including the TPS reports his boss constantly badgers him about. The two bobs, skilled at sociopath spotting, are of course instantly impressed. In a later scene, we find that they are inclined to fast-track him directly to senior management, as the Gervais principal would predict. Bob. Uh, we should move on to Peter Gibbons. I had a chance to meet this young man, and boy does he have straight-to-upper management written all over him. The consultants are so impressed with Peter's perceptive candour that they break their professional veil of silence. At the meeting, they take him into their confidence, revealing that his buddies Michael and Samir 
are to be let go. Despite the fast lane being open to him, Peter is now too free to jump at it instantly and leaves the bobs guessing as to his intentions. In one of the many symbolic scenes in the movie, he then returns to his cubicle and takes down the walls, creating a more open space with a window view for himself. Peter has now tasted freedom. His challenge is to figure out what to do with it. Sidebar. Bill Lumberg. Though the character of the manager, Bill Lumberg, with his characteristic slow drawl and velvet-glove sadism, is now firmly established in pop culture memory, his role in the plot is not particularly interesting. Still, he presents a few new points of interest. In Lumberg, Office Space offers a rather more complex character than Michael Scott in The Office. Lumberg is partly a clueless, petty tyrant, focused on the symbol of make-work that has since become an iconic pop-culture reference. TPS reports. But he is also a hard-to-avoid enforcer of senior management intent, aware of his own agency and power to a degree. In this, he is like the pointy-haired boss in Dilbert, who also oscillates between clueless and loser-cat's paw to background sociopaths. So in Lumberg, we find a mix of Michael Scott and Gabe Lewis from The Office, but ultimately, he is revealed to be primarily clueless middle management. Thanks to Peter's expose of the useless TPS reports, the two bobs suddenly start grilling him about his job. Much to his alarm, Lumberg discovers that the consultants, and by implication senior management, now view him as potentially part of the problem rather than the solution. Later, when Lumberg discovers that Peter has an additional meeting scheduled with the Bobs, which he has not been invited to, his alarm turns to panic and a healthy fear of Peter. Like most pawns, he finds himself mostly sidelined when truly important things are afoot. The interesting thing about office space is that the true sociopaths are never visible at all, not counting the consultants. Lumberg represents otherwise faceless bureaucratic power and invisible sociopath interests. The Outlaw Road. With Peter having tasted freedom, the main act is set in motion, his attempt to break his friends free. There is an element of a germinating messiah complex here. His own position is secure, yet he feels obliged to save his friends and, if necessary, give up his own secure position in order to do so. So Peter hatches a plot with Michael and Samir, newly disillusioned by news of their impending layoffs, to exact revenge on Initech and bankroll their exit. Their idea is to take advantage of a rounding procedure in Initech's financial transaction software to divert fractions of pennies into an external account. The three manage to rationalise and justify the plan as somewhere between not really theft and just recompense for their shabby treatment at Initech. The plot succeeds a little too well. Not only do they pull it off, but thanks to a coding error by Michael, they find themselves in possession of a far bigger cash flow than they anticipated, too big a leak to pass unnoticed. This sets up the farcical ending that unfolds. This passing encounter with criminality is not an arbitrary element in the plot. The association between criminality and exile is a widely recognised one. This is why the term outlaw has connotations of both exile and criminality. You cannot address one without addressing the other. While exits from the prevailing social order are not exactly blocked off, a toll must be paid in order to pass through. 
To even seek an existence outside the legitimate part of the social order is to accept being marked as a potential criminal. Not all criminal classes are exile classes, and not all exile classes are criminal classes, but to seek an exit from the social order is to face the question. Do you also choose criminality with respect to the current social order along the way? That passing through an exit marks you as a potential criminal actually makes the act of marking a self-fulfilling prophecy. Many who exit seem to operate by the principle that you might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. This is one of the major arguments against the criminalization of drugs like marijuana. The criminalization of the arguably non-criminal catalyzes more serious criminality. To answer this question, one must choose a moral framework within which to judge the society one is attempting to leave behind. A major question in office space is the relationship between social morality, sociopath morality and criminality in the legal sense. For Joanna, there is no difference among the three types of morality. For her, it's all crime and her moral position is simple. Stealing is wrong. There is no moral relativism. For Peter... The newly minted sociopath, morality is a private matter. Social morality and legal notions of criminality are merely factors that affect the risk of getting caught. Though Joanne does manage to get to him a bit by comparing him to a common thief, his actions are driven by actual risk perceptions, not morality. Michael and Samir operate by a sense of innate fairness, which they use to determine the extent to which the social order they inhabit ought to be considered legitimate. This is the sort of morality that is normally expressed in the form of moral outrage. Their sense of moral outrage helps them calibrate the degree to which they can feel justified swindling it. So their panic at finding out that they're taking more than they're owed by the system is as much a moral panic as fear of getting caught out. They are willing to go along with Peter so long as the amount is small and the risk of detection low. But when the stakes escalate and panic outweighs outrage, they retreat to a safe, conventional morality. When they discover that Peter was wrong about the worst-case scenario being some sort of luxurious minimum security prison and that they might be headed to federal pound-me-in-the-ass prison if caught, any remaining aspirations to freedom are thoroughly squelched. Windows into Exile as a story about exit paths, office space is naturally framed by an understanding of the state and space of exile viewed from middle-class windows. This space is represented by four interesting side characters, Peter's neighbour Lawrence, two Initech colleagues, Milton and Tom, and a door-to-door -door magazine salesman, Steve. Each of the four can be viewed as marking one of the exit doors available to the three leads. Lawrence, never domesticated. Lawrence does not need to exit because he was never domesticated into the workforce in the first place. He already, or always already if you must, exists in a state of exile. Lawrence is a classic example of the archetypal exile class that Thorstein Veblen called the delinquent class. He is not homeless or unemployed, but he mostly owns his own time and works in the construction worker class one of the many classes that can sustain an existence on the margins with minimal exposure to the domesticating forces of the middle class. At one point, Peter asks Lawrence what he would do if he had a million dollars, the classic fuck-you-money question. Lawrence replies promptly, Two chicks at the same time, man. 
revealing the simple, unreconstructed hedonism that drives life in the delinquent class. When Lawrence asks Peter the same question in turn, Peter replies, nothing. Relax, sit on my ass all day, I would do nothing. To this Lawrence offers a prompt comeback, pregnant with childlike wisdom. Well, you don't need a million dollars to do nothing. This is the central cognitive dissonance in Peter's life. There is literally nothing keeping him trapped in his gridlock script, not even money. Milton, Descent into Madness. If Lawrence is living proof that nothing is preventing Peter from choosing freedom, Milton, he of red stapler fame, is barely alive proof that not actively choosing freedom can end in a descent to madness. Milton has suffered under dehumanizing work conditions for so long he has become subhuman. Blinking uncomprehendingly at the world through thick glasses, he is nominally still within the workforce, but only by virtue of a stroke of luck, a clerical error that keeps him receiving paychecks. It is a condition of accidentally deferred exile, a sort of vegetative life support situation that gets worse every day. His stapler is stolen, his desk is progressively moved from bad to worse locations until he finally finds himself consigned to the basement. When the clerical error is corrected by the two bobs and his life support is turned off, Milton suffers a breakdown and completes his exit in a spectacular way by burning down the Initech building. But before any consequences can kick in, a second stroke of luck befalls him. He finds a windfall in the form of a large cashier's cheque left under Lumberg's door by Peter in an attempt to return the stolen money. This is sufficient for him to retire to the Caribbean. In real life, of course, a Milton-like character would not have experienced either stroke of luck. He would have not have enjoyed a period of unearned paychecks or a terminal exit windfall. Realistic versions of Milton-like exit trajectories usually end in workplace berserker tragedies and getting hunted down and shot by law enforcement. Tom. Purgatory to Hell. Tom is a clueless older employee in a bullshit customer relations job. His is a Purgatory to Hell exit trajectory. Like Milton's, it is also involuntary. Tom's idea of freedom is that holy grail of exit scripts, a passive income stream. While sharing the news of impending layoffs with Peter, Michael and Samir, he reveals his idea of a successful exit strategy in an excited mini-rant. Tom, you know there are people in this world who don't have to put up with all this shit? Like that guy that invented the pet rock. You see, that's what you have to do. You have to use your mind and come up with some really great idea like that, and you never have to work again. Michael. I don't think the pet rock was really such a good idea. Tom. The guy made a million dollars. You know, had an idea like that once. Tom. Really? What was it, Tom? Tom. Well, all right. It was a jump to conclusions mat. You see, it would be this mat that you would put on the floor, and it would have different conclusions written on it that you could jump to. Michael. That is the worst idea I've ever heard in my life, Tom. Samir. Yes, yes, it's horrible. This idea... His ideal life achievement and ideal life condition are both passive, dead-end things. His exit is precipitated by his performance in the interviews conducted by the consultants Bob and Bob. When asked what his job is, he blusters for a moment about interfacing between engineers and customers, but when pressed, is forced to admit that his job effectively amounts to occasional secretarial duties. Carrying customer requirement faxes over to the engineers when his secretary isn't able to.
Unable to justify the existence of his job, he is forced out. But like Milton, he too is saved from the destitution that would normally follow in such situations for older, unemployable individuals. He is paralyzed in a car accident while reversing out of his driveway and receives a large settlement. Ironically, this happens just after he tries to commit suicide by gassing himself in the garage. But so awful was his earlier condition of being in a soul-shriveling bullshit job that his exit by way of attempted suicide and an injury settlement actually seems like a positive way out to him. Flush with his settlement payout, he throws a party where he shows off the prototype for his jump-to-conclusions mat idea and shares words of wisdom with Peter. If you hang in there long enough, good things can happen in this world. I mean, look at me. He appears to be genuinely unaware of the irony of speaking those words while in a full-body cast in a wheelchair. Steve, resurrection into delinquency. Finally, we have the delightful cameo by Orlando Jones, Steve the Black Magazine salesman. His role is small but significant enough to merit foreshadowing in the opening scene, in the form of Michael rolling up his window when approached by a black newspaper seller on his morning commute. Steve knocks on the door while Peter, Michael and Samir are trying, with stereotypical middle-class clumsiness, to figure out how to return the money they've stolen from Inatech without getting caught, at one point being reduced to looking up money laundering in the dictionary. Steve shows up claiming to be a recovering coke addict selling magazine subscriptions. The conspirators recognise him as a potential guide to the underworld, and invite him into the apartment to ask if he knows anything about laundering money. At this point, Steve can't keep up the act, so he switches to a normal middle-class non-cokehead accent and confesses that he is actually not a recovering drug addict. He is, in fact, a laid-off software engineer from Inetrode, another software company that had experienced the bob-and-bob layoff and restructuring treatment the previous year. The kicker is that he is making more money selling magazine subscriptions than he ever did as a software engineer. The character of Steve does nothing to drive the plot along but serves several purposes. He exploits default perceptions of black characters in middle-class America to engineer a lucrative exit. Like Lawrence, he presents to the lead characters the cognitive dissonance of delinquent lifestyles. He lacks middle-class status but is actually better off in the delinquent class. But unlike Lawrence, who has voluntarily chosen membership in the delinquent class, Steve has had to find his way there via a forced exit. There is an element of commentary on race and freedom in this little sketch. The more privileged white and Asian races are actually more comprehensively trapped by the middle-class script. Steve represents a possible future for Michael and Samir in particular, but an improbable one, since they are not black. While all who seek an exit are marked for potential outlaw criminality. Being born a black male in America marks you that way by virtue of birth. While the Steve story is rather implausible, it would take a very clever individual to make more than a software engineer playing drug addict to sell magazine subscriptions, the philosophical point of the vignette is a valid one. Our perceptions of objective value are coloured by our perceptions of class and social status, this mini-narrative is in fact commonplace enough to be a trope. There is a Sherlock Holmes story based on a similar premise, for instance. Most people recognise that many blue-collar jobs pay more than white-collar jobs. Few act on that recognition, 
Class affiliations are one factor that hold the script trapped from exploring the complete range of possibilities open to them. Freedom versus crash landings. The four exit routes mark out the boundary of the social and cultural space we recognize as middle-class life. Voluntary delinquency, descent into madness, suicide and involuntary delinquency. There is nothing fundamental about these four. There are many others. In Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, for instance, the exit path is a hit-and-run accident followed by a legal nightmare. For many families in America, the fall is triggered by a medical bankruptcy. In a streetcar named Desire, Blanche Du Bois is forced through an exit filled with abuse and violence to a sanitarium. What unifies exit narratives is that without the lucky breaks that save characters in comedies, most exits, especially if involuntary, lead by default to death, destitution, delinquency or madness. If you survive at all, you'll be marked as being somewhere between a social outcast and potentially criminal outlaw. Freedom is about more than walking through an unlocked exit door. It is also about figuring out how to avoid the default catastrophic fates and how to deal with the burden of negative perceptions associated with seeking an exit. It is about surviving exit wounds, if you'll forgive a terrible pun. The first step is to choose a voluntary exit rather than waiting to be forced out. Peter ultimately finds an exit, the first one marked by his neighbour Lawrence. He adopts the same mode of delinquent freedom, working alongside Lawrence in construction. Michael and Peter, after their brief flirtation with exit paths, return to normal, middle-class life at Initrode, the company where Steve the magazine salesman used to work. They are ultimately too trapped to escape, even with Peter's help, and so their trajectories end in a stable place, the acceptance that marks the end of grieving. Michael is no longer oblivious to the wider world, Samir is no longer angry. They have learned to give up yearning for freedom and accept captivity. The movie ends with Milton on a beach, unable to enjoy his accidental wealth, threatening under his breath to burn down the resort as revenge for bad service. His escape is no escape at all. His dehumanization is complete enough that even when handed the keys to the exit, he is unable to walk out, a golem to the end. Office Space versus The Office Office Space is both an optimistic fantasy that exaggerates the likelihood of successful exits and a bleaker view of work than The Office. In the world of Office Space, there is no freedom to be found inside the script, no reason to look for meaning inside at all. Exit and exile is the only hope for a trajectory of scriptless freedom. There is no up or out choice, only different varieties of out. All four archetypes of exile are wildly unrealistic. In real life, the modern construction industry is just as miserable a middle-class trap as any other line of work. The 2009 Ben Affleck starrer Company Men illustrates the grim realities of the sector. In real life, Milton would not enjoy even one stroke of random luck, let alone two. In real life, nobody would mistake a failed suicide attempt followed by a bad accident and serious disablement as good luck, no matter how big the settlement. In real life, recovering drug addicts selling magazine subscriptions would barely get by. Yet despite the exaggerations, the possibility of freedom through exit and exile is not pure fantasy. 
Every month, a fresh cohort of script-bound, middle-class, white-collar workers attempts to break free, armed with nothing more than some savings, vague start-up or artistic dreams, and the idea that there can be more to life than gradual dehumanization to Miltonhood. Most only manage empty gestures and remain fundamentally trapped, never even making it to a real exit path. The rockstar road, backpacking walkabout and startup dream all turn out to be improvised subplots within the main script rather than clean breaks from it. As a cynical reader once remarked to me, you can take a person out of the middle class, but you cannot take the middle class out of a person. Of the few who truly walk through an exit door, most turn around and head back once they encounter the grim default outcomes of death, destitution, and miserable rather than happy delinquency. But a few do manage to avoid the default fates and find a measure of freedom. Whether they make good and return triumphantly to the mainstream, in possession of new wealth, or whether they remain in permanent exile, idly waiting and watching for their moment as successful delinquents. The freedom itself is real. Breaking through internal mental barriers is the essential step. The context of the break for freedom, inside the script or within exile extensions of it, doesn't matter as much. You can be free in a cubicle or remain trapped while wandering in the desert. The only true exit is to a freer mind. The only true state of happy exile is one which allows you to penetrate the social fictions that surround you, whether you remain within a cubicle or build a life around Burning Man. Office space ultimately falls just short of greatness because it fails to drive this point home. It comes tantalizingly close, though.
Advanced Organizational Literacy for Couch Potatoes. Organizational literacy is a skill. This means you must practice it constantly in order to keep it fresh, evolving and increasing in sophistication. The equivalent of reading is consuming rich fictional raw material since your own workplace will likely offer a limited amount of action to observe. Television and movies work best since they allow you to go beyond words and read workplace architecture, body language and facial expressions. The equivalent of writing is practicing behaviors designed to influence people and organizations. That is the theme of the Be Slightly Evil companion ebook. While you can also practice writing in safe contexts such as improv theatre, dealing with real career risks, live fire exercises as it were, is necessary if you are serious about developing your skills. Here is my top dozen list of sources besides the office to help you improve your organisational literacy. Besides trying to spot illustrations of the concepts in the Gervais principle, you should also try to go beyond and attempt to identify new archetypes and patterns on your own. Deadwood. Next to The Office, David Milch's epic HBO series Deadwood is my favourite show for practising organisational literacy skills. The most valuable element is the undercurrent of physical violence in the show, which serves to highlight dynamics that are generally much more muted in modern workplaces. Pay particular attention to the internal group dynamics among Al Swearingen's henchmen and the evolution of Seth Bullock's character. Mad Men. The most valuable thing about Mad Men is its illustration of a key fact about real workplaces. There are few pure loser, clueless or sociopath archetypes. Individuals play each of those roles depending on their mental state. Even Don Draper has his clueless moments, and even mostly clueless characters like Harry Crane display flashes of sociopath behaviour. Also notable is the show's treatment of the special features of women's trajectories through the workplace and the interplay between organisational politics and sexual politics. The Wire. I have to admit I have not watched this show and have no intention of doing so, but I have it on good authority that this is worthwhile raw material on par with The Office itself. Dilbert. While this classic strip can be a little clumsy and obvious at times, it does offer useful ongoing commentary on the contemporary workplace that occasionally manages to precisely skewer an emerging new trend. Look to the strip for clues rather than complete solved mysteries. Office Space The subject of the bonus essay in this book, this 1999 Mike Judge movie, is probably the easiest beginner-level introduction to organisational literacy. It approaches the subject via an examination of exit paths from middle-class scripts rather than survival paths within it. Be warned, though, that the movie sacrifices accuracy for laughs to the point that important philosophical points are muddied. Be cautious in drawing lessons. Breaking Bad This seems to be a perennial favourite among Ribbon Farm readers, but while it is hugely entertaining, it is not, in my opinion, particularly notable for illuminating portrayals of organisational dynamics. Like office space, though, it has much to say about exit paths from middle-class scripts and the relationship between criminality and exile. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe This sprawling science fiction comedy has far too many gems of organisational literacy raw material to enumerate. 
It is the only book that makes my list, and it is probably not an accident that it was a radio show first. My favourite bits are the episode of the Golga Frinchambi arc, the story of Waubaga the Infinitely Prolonged, and the deft portraits of various organisations such as the Vogon Bureaucracy, the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, and the publishing houses of Ursa Minor. Yes, Minister, and yes, Prime Minister. While this show can seem a little dated, it is set in the Britain of the 80s under Margaret Thatcher, I have yet to find a better exploration of organisational dynamics in political settings. While the show is more of a traditional comedy than The Office, it deals with much more complex situations on average. Note that the classic pyramid is inverted in politics. MPs represent the loser class, ministers the clueless class, and top bureaucrats the sociopath class. Ricky Gervais's later work. I have ambivalent feelings about Ricky Gervais's work after The Office. While Extras, his show about struggling actors, has plenty of sardonic little vignettes and cringe-inducing moments, it is fundamentally an American-style redemption narrative. His feature films, Ghost Town and The Invention of Lying, showcase his increasingly compassionate and humanistic sensibilities. Of the lot, The Invention of Lying probably has the most to offer by way of illustrating organisational literacy themes. House of Cards. I have only watched the American version, starring Kevin Spacey. While it is entertaining enough, the show suffers from a lack of clueless characters in the picture and the Rube Goldberg fragility of all revenge dramas. It does, however, supply many illustrations of sociopaths playing information poker. Glengarry Glen Ross. This David Mamet classic is a must-watch for the densely packed dialogue it offers. In a way, it is a darker, more aphoristic version of The Office. Particularly worth paying attention to are the characters played by Kevin Spacey, Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon. Alec Baldwin's brief cameo is worth watching. The Big Kahuna This underrated little gem, another one starring Kevin Spacey, probably offers the best exploration you can find of backstage life in a social theatre, event marketing in this case.